Well, over the past several weeks in our sermon series, we've been considering the life of David. And as Zach mentioned earlier, last week we had a bit of a cliffhanger. And this morning we find David sitting in, in the aftermath of his sin of adultery and murder. We've seen him fall all the way to the lowest point imaginable for Israel's king. And so we come today to, to see David in the way that God responds to him in his sin. So our sermon text this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's verses 1 through 20. And that text is printed for you in your worship guide, or you can turn there in your Bibles. And I'd ask that if you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor." And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have Utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food. On the seventh day, the child died. 
And the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite TV shows is House. And I've been re-watching it over the summer on Netflix. Now, if you're not familiar with the show, it's kind of a modern take on the Sherlock Holmes stories, except instead of following a private detective who solves crimes, it follows a, a brilliant doctor who solves seemingly impossible medical mysteries. And the main character of the show is a man named Dr. Gregory House, and he's without question a brilliant genius And he's by far the best doctor for someone with any kind of an unexplainable illness. But for all of his brilliance and all of his skill, he has a dark side. As a result of chronic pain in his leg, he has an addiction to prescription painkillers. And he radically abuses these drugs. And as we see the show progress... His drug use leads him down an increasingly dark and dangerous path. At every turn, he flaunts the rules, he disregards the law, he destroys all of his relationships, and he does significant damage to his own health in the process. But through all of this, he continually insists that he doesn't have a problem. Anytime someone addresses it with him. He says, I'm fine. And he often says when someone will come to him and express concern over his drug use, he'll respond, I don't have a drug problem. I have a pain problem. See, what's happened is his addiction has made him completely blind to the fact that he even has a problem. And it's definitely blinded him to the dangerous and destructive effects of his problem. And not only has it made him blind, But it's made him a fool. At one point in the show, he's being investigated by the police for drug-related crimes. He faces the loss of his medical license, and he faces approximately 10 years in prison. And in in the course of this uh, going on, he goes and he tries to steal some prescription pills from a dying cancer patient. But fortunately, he's caught by his friend, another doctor, and he's, he's unable to do that. But then later, he goes to the hospital pharmacy and he fills a prescription for this same patient. Except that this time, that patient has died. And when he takes the pills, he's required to sign for the prescription. So there's a physical record of what he's done. This is very illegal, but he doesn't seem to care. It's obvious to everyone that's watching that he's going to get caught. The police are going to see this and they're going to have hard evidence that he's broken the law. He'll lose his license. He'll go to prison. But he can't see this. His sin has turned him into a blind, 
self-absorbed fool. That's what sin does. It deceives us, it consumes us, and it turns us into fools. And that's what happened to David in chapter 11. And that's where we find him this morning. He's committed adultery and murder. He faced exposure at every turn, but he continued on with no regard. If someone had come to him and asked him about his behavior, I'm sure that I'm fine would have been a likely response. But David wasn't fine. He may not have seen it yet, but as we saw in verse 27 of chapter 11, it was clear that he had a problem. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So the portion of the story that we see this morning, it's a story of grace from the very beginning. David had been sinful and foolish. His actions caused great displeasure to God. But God didn't leave the fool to sit in his folly. No, he sent Nathan. And Nathan comes to David as God's instrument to rescue him from himself, to open his eyes to his sin, and to lead him into repentance, to bring restoration to David's relationship with God. In going to David, Nathan, he had a very difficult and very dangerous job. He needed to get David to see his sin for what it was, but he had to do this shrewdly and wisely. Because just coming out and telling David that his actions were sinful and that he'd made God angry, that probably wouldn't have been a very effective strategy. I mean, David knew the law. He knew he'd broken the law. But knowing the law, it hadn't stopped him. And it hadn't, up to this point, caused him to repent. He was, he was blind. So, though he knew, he couldn't see. Now, not only would approaching the problem this way, not only would it have been ineffective for Nathan, but it probably would have made David really angry. It's likely that it would have hardened his heart even more than it already had been hardened and caused him to, to just descend further into the blindness of not seeing the reality of his sin. And by the way, it was not uncommon in those days for kings to execute prophets who made them angry. So Nathan had a difficult and dangerous task. If he was going to help David, he had to walk a very fine line. But all the difficulties and the dangers aside, Nathan's task was simple. He needed to love David. He needed to engage David and help him to see his sin for what it was. And in our Christian communities, we find blind, foolish sinners like David all over the place. Sometimes I'm the blind, foolish sinner. Sometimes you're the blind, foolish sinner. Sometimes it's your spouse or a colleague or a friend or the person that sits next to you in the pew on Sunday morning. Whoever the person may be, the task of the Christian is ultimately, it's the same 
as Nathan's task. It's to lovingly engage in order that the one that's stuck in his sin, that can't see, in order that his eyes might be opened and that seeing he might repent and return to God. So you and I are called just as Nathan was called. And we'll face danger and difficulty just as Nathan faced danger. Now, we probably won't face the risk of execution like Nathan did, but, but make no mistake, the risk of lovingly engaging a brother or a sister that's stuck in a, in a cycle of blindness and foolish sin, the danger is real. So we have to be wise and driven by love, just like Nathan was. So how did Nathan do it? How could he, how could he help David to see his sin for what it was? And how could he lead David to that place of genuine repentance? How, how can we lead our brothers and sisters to a place of genuine repentance? How do we find that place ourselves? It's not easy, but I do think it's actually pretty simple. Because true repentance, it, it only comes from a place of brokenness. It's only when our hearts have truly been broken by our sin and when we grieve our sin and grieve the way that it has offended God, the way that it's hurt other people and the damage that it's done in our own lives, only then can we come to a place of genuine repentance. So for there to be repentance, sin has to be seen clearly and seeing it it needs to break the heart of the sinner. So it might seem at this point like the best course of action is to boldly call out sin, to to attack it head on, to announce God's law to people, and to demand that those who have broken His law repent. And for some people, this approach works. There's definitely times when people need a blunt, stern rebuke. But I don't know that this approach would have been particularly helpful for David. Because as I said, David knew what he'd done. He knew that he'd broken God's law. And throughout the story, he's demonstrated a great deal of hard-heartedness. He demonstrated an unwillingness to acknowledge the reality of his sin. So a law-centered approach like this it ultimately probably would have just led to further hardening of David's heart. Probably would have gotten angry and defensive. I mean, think about it. How many times have you seen someone that's completely blinded to the realities of their sin? How often have you seen that kind of a person respond with a genuine, broken-hearted repentance and return to God when someone comes to them and aggressively and angrily declares, you're sinning and you need to repent? I'm not going to say that that never works. Um, God can lead people to repentance through whatever means He chooses, but I don't think I've seen that work very many times like that. So it would have been perfectly true and warranted for Nathan to come to David and say, you've sinned. You've broken God's law. You need to repent, David. But because David was so blind, so deceived 
by his sin, could this really have, have helped him to see? I don't know that it could have. I think that there's a reason that we see this story unfold the way that it does. So the question that Nathan has to ask himself is, how can I help my brother to see? And so instead of coming to David in anger and coming with an aggressive, law-centered approach, he comes at the issue a lot more subtly than that. What he does is he, he turns the logic of repentance on its head. Nathan understands that seeing sin clearly should lead to a broken heart and that that broken heart should lead to repentance. But the way he talks to David, he actually does things a little bit backwards. He goes to David and in essence he says, I'm going to help you to have a heart that's broken over sin. And then I'm going to help you see that the sin that's broken your heart is yours. So what he does is he tells the parable that we've just read a few minutes ago of the poor man and his lamb and the way that the rich man came and stole it. And when David hears this story, his heart breaks for this poor man and his anger burns towards the rich man and he immediately pronounces judgment. He says, this man deserves to die. And then with one simple little phrase, Nathan completely wrecks David's world. You are the man. You are the man. With those words, the floodlights come on and they illuminate David's sin and at this point, he can't unsee it. He stands utterly exposed. And his own words of condemnation, they fall back on him. It's David that deserves to die. Now, at this point, don't give in to the temptation to think that David had no choice at this point but to repent and to return to God. Yeah, he was caught, and he was exposed. But I think it's important to note that a lesser man in David's position, he could easily have just eliminated Nathan, could have had him executed, and could have continued to just travel more and more and more deeply into the pattern of sin that he had been walking in. But that's not what David does. And the reason that he didn't do that is through Nathan, God had broken his heart over his sin. We see this brokenness in Psalm 51. This is a psalm that's given to us in the context of this story. And David's, David's brokenheartedness and his agony over his sin are evident throughout the psalm. He cries out at one point, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And he, and he prays, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And then he declares, God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. His heart is broken. He's grieved. And out of his grief, he turns to God 
He repents. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And David's repentance, his confession, it's met immediately by a word of forgiveness. There are consequences for David's sin, and they are quite significant. You know, we see him played out all through the rest of his story and for generations afterward. But, but the first thing that we hear once David has repented is this word of forgiveness. He turned to God, and the first thing he found was forgiveness. This is the pattern we see throughout all of Scripture. Where there is true repentance, there is always forgiveness. And even in the world at large, we see this pattern. When we see repentance, we see some semblance of forgiveness. I think a good example of this has happened just in the past few weeks. So you'll, you know that several years ago, LeBron James was one of the world's most popular athletes. He'd been drafted number one in the NBA right out of high school by his hometown team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. And early in his career, you know, he had led them to the NBA Finals. From very early on, he was being compared with the likes of Michael Jordan. And great basketball minds were asking, is this guy the greatest basketball player to ever play the game? Everybody loved LeBron James. But things changed in the summer of 2010. James was a free agent that offseason, and that means he could, he could go and play basketball for any team that could, that could offer him the money. Or he could, he could stay in Cleveland and play for his hometown team. He could bring them the championship that they'd waited decades for. And he drug out his decision-making process. He, he hemmed and hawed and said, oh, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. For weeks, he drug it out. And he finally made his announcement on, a, on an hour-long special on ESPN. Was all the bells and whistles, the lights. And he sat on a stage in Cleveland, and he finally shared what has, at this point, become infamous as the decision. As I'm sure some of you may know, he broke the heart of the city of Cleveland when he announced with what was seen as a great deal of arrogance, this fall I'm taking my talents to South Beach, he was leaving his hometown team, and he was going to play for the Miami Heat. And I'm sure you've, many of you have heard the clip from uh, a little while later when he's talking about all the championships they're going to win in Miami. Not one, not two, not three, not four. Yeah, you get the picture. There was outrage. And it wasn't so much outrage over his decision to leave Cleveland and go to Miami, but it was over the extreme arrogance that people perceived in the way that he communicated his decision. In the city of Cleveland, fans burned his jerseys in the streets, and just the venom spewed over the Internet and sports radio. It was everywhere. LeBron's favorability rating, this is an actual statistic that a number of polling agencies keep, it was literally flipped upside down. He went from being one of the world's most popular and loved players to one of its most hated players overnight. For years, LeBron James has been the player that everybody loves to hate. 
But over the past couple weeks, a little bit has changed. This summer he was a free agent again. He could go anywhere he wanted. But things looked differently this time. There wasn't all the drama surrounding his decision. It wasn't drug out for a ridiculous amount of time. There was no ESPN special, no lights, no showmanship, no arrogant-sounding sound bites about all the championships he was going to win. There was none of the apparent arrogance that had offended so many people. Instead, his announcement came quietly. It came in a, a heartfelt article that he wrote in Sports Illustrated. And in the article, he discussed his love for his hometown, his love for the game of basketball, and his regrets over the way that things had gone back in 2010. And he expressed, hey, I just, I just want to get to work. I want to get to work for my city. He announced that he was coming home to Cleveland. So in short, I think we could say he repented. He saw the way that the things that he had done in the past had hurt people. And he expressed great sorrow over the fact that he had hurt people. Well, the response to his announcement was instant and it was massive. The city that had, just a few years ago, burned his jerseys, they're still partying as they celebrate his homecoming. And soon after, within a couple of hours of the announcement, there was a website that began selling t-shirts, and they were modeled after Cleveland Cavaliers jerseys, the same colors and font types, but instead of saying Cavaliers across the front, they just had the word forgiven. And the G in forgiven was formed by the jersey number six that James had worn when he played in Cleveland. In just a matter of hours, this website crashed because it couldn't handle all of the traffic of people trying to buy these t-shirts. The immediate, overwhelming response to his act of repentance, it was forgiveness. They put it on t-shirts. And so if even fickle sports fans can respond to genuine repentance with such an overwhelming display of forgiveness, then how much more will our Heavenly Father respond to our repentance with complete and total forgiveness? The forgiveness that LeBron James found in Cleveland, it's only a shadow of the forgiveness that we see in David's story, and it's only a shadow of the forgiveness that we can find in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness that he found in Cleveland, it's it's built on the whims of sports fans. It could change at any moment. But the forgiveness that David found, and even more than that, the forgiveness that's offered to us in Christ, it's built on the firm foundation of the promise of God. It's secure. It's unwavering. It can always be depended upon. According to the law, David deserved death for what he had done. But God forgave him. This forgiveness, it wasn't based primarily on David's repentance. It was based on God's promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says of David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, 
I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Because of his promise, God sent Nathan to David. And because of his promise, he led David to repentance. Because of God's promise, David's repentance was met with immediate and complete forgiveness. In David's forgiveness, we see a God that's faithful to keep his promises. Which is good for us because we know that God has made another promise. He promised that through David's line, there would be a greater king than David. A king that would offer forgiveness and restoration to the whole world. And we know that God's kept that promise too because Jesus Christ is that king. And Jesus has purchased our forgiveness with his blood. So though David sinned grievously, and though again and again and again we sin grievously, God is faithful and we can rest in his promises. Now David's story in this, this this one of David's stories, it ends just as really it should. David repents and he's forgiven and his response in verse 20 to everything that's happened is this. Then David arose from the earth and he washed and anointed himself. He changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. So as we consider the forgiveness that God has given to us in Christ, let us, like David, rise and worship. Let's pray. Father, we sin again and again. Father, so often we're blind and we're foolish and we can't even see our sin. Father, open our eyes and break our hearts. Help us to grieve our sin. And in our grief, help us to turn to you in repentance that we might find the forgiveness that you have purchased for us in Christ. Father, thank you that we can never sin so much that that you would no longer forgive us. We can never stray too far. We can't outrun your love for us. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.